I feel like this week's guest has been in my life for as long as I can remember. From those happy days when his smiling face greeted us on a weekday afternoon to his more grown-up phase of directing Academy Award-winning films, Ron Howard has always made it his business to entertain. And entertain us he has as both an actor and a director, from Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind to his most recent offerings, the Beatles documentary Eight Days a Week and Dan Brown thriller Inferno. Dante's Inferno isn't fiction, it's a prophecy. Someone created a plague. Our population is spiraling out of control. Inferno is the cure. They're gonna wipe out half the world's population unless we find this virus. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast exploring the unity between sight and sound. Now, whereas my previous guest, Andrea Arnold, prefers to accompany her films with source music, Ron is a particular fan of score and has accordingly collaborated with some of the finest cinematic composers of recent times, from James Horner and Thomas Newman to John Williams and Hans Zimmer. And we'll hear plenty more about the director's admiration for that esteemed bunch during the course of our conversation, as well as excerpts from the work they produced for films such as Apollo 13, Cinderella Man, Frost Nixon, Backdraft and Rush. But we begin with an admission on Ron's part that he really doesn't know very much about music at all. A, a podcast about music. Okay, I just can't remember the names of any songs. That's fine. You'll I, have, help me out. I have lists. Okay, great. I mean, it's fascinating. I think it's an art form that's very much part of the movie-making world that it's underappreciated and people don't talk enough about. I think how powerful it can be. Yeah. Would you agree? I couldn't agree more. And I, I love listening to old film scores and new ones. And having worked with some pretty remarkable composers, I can tell you. It's the one area of the filmmaking process where I feel I'm powerless. I, I have opinions, but I can't do their job. I can, I can do a lot of people's jobs on a set and around yeah. a movie, but I, I could never do that. And I learned that with the best of them, you talk to them as you would talk to your lead actor. You talk to them as you would talk to the screenwriter. And the, the best of the composers, you know, they respond to the ideas yeah. that are expressed in that story. They respond to the scenes they see and the nuances that they pick up on. And uh, I have come to really love that whole process, but it is always nerve-wracking <laughs> because it's an impossible thing to explain if a cue is bothering you. Yeah. It's really difficult. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I've, I've worked with some absolutely world-class composers. What are those conversations that you have with your composers? Are they in at quite an early stage, or is it whilst you're editing, mm -hmm. or through the shooting? It's really as early as they're willing to be in, because mm -hmm. a lot of the best of them are very, very busy. It used to be you finish your movie, and then you decide who your composer was. On Cocoon, we went around and auditioned composers, and Randy Newman was a choice that we were interested in, but he wasn't available yeah. because we had used the natural for some temp score, so he seemed like an interesting possibility.
then I had this great meeting with James Horner, and he pitched ideas the way a screenwriter would come in and pitch a take. Yeah. And his ideas were fresh and original, and that was my first experience with a score that just transcended everything that I'd ever imagined wow. it could be. And that started, I guess, a long relationship as well with James in terms of the number of films that you worked oh, yes. on with him. And a real variety of things as well. That's the great thing where, I imagine it's great for a composer in the same way for a director where you mix genres and you surprise people and you do something that's challenging for you as well as them. You know, I've been like that as a director. I've always admired those directors who have that kind of range, whether it's Billy Wilder or Howard Hawks, but later Mike Nichols wide array of tones uh, and genres. Today, you know, I'd say Ang Lee is kind of amazing, the different kinds of movies yeah. that, that he's given all of us. Uh, Steven Spielberg shows a tremendous amount of range and variety. So I tend to work with people who get excited about that. And, yeah. and I certainly had that kind of experience with James Horner. And uh, I miss him. I miss him terribly. Uh, and even though we hadn't worked together for, yeah. you know, a number of films, uh, I, I always was looking for the next opportunity to work with James and bring his particular talent to a to a project, and then um, and then tragically he was gone. I love his score for The Grinch and The Grinch School Christmas Thank you. particularly. Yeah. I he, think well, it's he, magical. You know, he was great. He made all the difference in the world to Apollo 13. I know. <laughs> well, you're right. But the, the, those themes in Willow, oh, I, yeah, you know, I, I, they just were so sweeping and, um, and so um, sort of heartfelt mm. and earnest. I think James, in his own way, kind of related to 
little willow, you know, out <laughs> on a journey, trying to do the right thing. Who hasn't related to Willow? I think he's such a, you know, he's a character that a, a lot of people, I think, forget about him. Then someone mentions that film and your heart almost beats yeah, a little bit yeah. faster. Uh, Warwick Davis brought it to life in such a great way and that began a fantastic career for Warwick. But he brought a lot of soul and spirit to that movie as an actor and James certainly picked up on it. Tom Newman is a composer that I've worked with a couple of times. Now, Tom has a more specific kind of style. I mean, a lot of range within that. He did a score for a comedy I did called Gung Ho. It was so cool, and we had some records that we played in that one, too, and, and some montages in, in that sort of 80s style yeah. of um, pop movie making. But then the Americana, like a kind of sophisticated Americana to a Cinderella Man, was uh, really powerful and beautiful and really captured the essence of that performance Russell Crowe was, was giving. Yeah. And he was a pleasure. I guess it depends on the particular film how much it warrants contemporary music, using tracks within the film that people know and recognize. I'll tell you an interesting experience that I had. Yeah. <clears throat> when I, I'd worked with Hans Zimmer a number of times, beginning with Backdraft, which was its own particular big melodramatic powerhouse uh, theme. admired Hans's range. You know, the first time I was aware of him was, was Rain Man, and then there was Driving Miss Daisy, and this is before he became this kind of epic composer. But I asked him to do Frost Nixon, but I said, I don't know how much score there's gonna really be, Hans, because I really wanna use a lot of songs. I think it'd be interesting to offset the kind of formality of these interviews and Nixon. I wanna put people in that era and remind them what 1977 was all about. 
And we actually sat around in, in Hans's studio, which is one of the most creative environments I've ever been in in my life. His studio in Los Angeles is fantastic. I can explain a little more to you about it because yeah. it's very unique and I, I want to go into it more. Yeah. But I even asked Hans and his team uh, of arrangers and so forth to come in and talk to me about which songs we should use. It's a Donna Summer one in there, remember? Oh, yeah, at the end, there's a really <laughs> yeah. great Donna Summer song that I love. collected them, we began using them, and Peter Morgan, who wrote it and was also a producer of Frost Nixon, he said, I feel like this is trivializing the movie. I was really thrown by that because I, I was feeling pretty good about most of the song choices, but not all of them. There's a part of me that heard him and kind of agreed. And then I brought that comment back to Hans. And Hans said, well, I understand what Peter's saying, and I understand what you like about some of those songs. Yeah. And I think, without ripping anything off, we can connect the character to the period and the ideas that you think are being expressed through those songs in a way that will be more organic to the drama. Very intelligent, very thoughtful, because he had never said, no, 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 I don't think songs are yeah. a good idea. resonated with all of us in, in different ways, whether I initially thought I agreed with it or not. I think by the end, we only had two or three songs. that Frost Nixon score, and he wasn't nominated for it, um, I don't think, but it was very, very sophisticated, yeah. and 
he did a thing that Hans is very good at, and he did it again in Rush, uh, which is to acknowledge the the duality of the story and the this, period and the period. Yeah. But this is what Peter Morgan writes: two two individuals who seem at first glance to be a lot different from one another, but th you begin to understand where they're alike. And he did it in a way both with Rush and with uh, Frost Nixon. And Hans identified that and found musical ways to help support that link that I thought was very interesting in both scores. Tell me a little bit about Hans's playroom. <laughs> Hans's studio, uh, I call it Hansylvania. You enter and there's these sort of red plush walls and it's a little gaudy. It's like almost a, a, a library in an old European country home. And got a couch, he's got his keyboard, he's got some big screens mounted, but he's got great art. He's got about, oh, a dozen or so guitars, because Hans doesn't advertise it, but he loves to play the guitar. He's got a samurai warrior helmet off in one bookcase, and various sculptures and things like that. Which and he it, wears whilst he plays the guitar. <laughs> I wish he would at least once. But it can either be a very private conversation, yeah. you, maybe the producer, the writer maybe, if the writer's in town, maybe no one else, maybe just Hans and the, and the director, or it can start to take on this other energy because he'll start inviting soloists in and some of his you know, arrangers mm -hmm. and they'll come in and they'll start setting up microphones around and different people are playing different instruments. You know, there's a, an electronic cello, he's on the keyboard, somebody else is on a, on a piano, a grand piano in the back, somebody else starts playing guitar. And soon, they're exploring the cues that Hans has written, but they start developing them and trying different things, and they'll even record it. And, you know, I think it rarely becomes the score, yeah. but it's often the framework for the evolution of the score. So Hans presents all these themes, and then he just basically says, what else? What else can it be? What do you think? And he often includes the director and, and sometimes the producer in that process, and it is so stimulating. It's not without its frustrations and dead ends, but it's also, you know, offers a lot of breakthroughs, yeah. and it's a blast. Yeah. And there's a lot of laughter, and he's, he's so self-effacing, and he's attacking his own work, and we're saying, no, no, Hans, it's actually okay, and he's saying, it's terrible, it's shit, it's not good enough yet. <laughs> and, you know, so he's very driven, yeah. but he and his band of merry music makers are pretty remarkable. He needs to sell tickets for Hansylvania for people, for people to go there. <laughs> I went to see his concert, and, and I think he's going to do more of it because he I had a great so. time. I don't know if you got to see it. I did it this time, right? It yeah. is fantastic. I saw it in, in France, in the south of France, wow. in Orange, and it was quite a couple of hours. Really, really fun. How did it feel hearing a piece of music from the number of films that you guys have worked it, on? That must have felt quite special. It was pretty moving. He used two pieces from the Robert Langdon movies. Yeah including Chevalier. Well, I'll reveal something. It was my wife Cheryl and I were having our 41st wedding anniversary, and he heard about it, and he said, now, this is normally a heroic theme, 
about Robert Langdon, but tonight we're gonna, we're gonna make it a love theme. And the violin soloist literally walked from the stage tenuously down these steps and a spotlight followed him all the way up to Cheryl and I, who were placed in a particular spot, unwittingly, uh, a place where the, you know, the soloist could get to us. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll never forget. We have this wonderful film that we're talking about today as well from Inferno and this character that you've revisited a number of times and Han's been involved in that whole journey and stuff. Has yeah. that been important to have him along for the ride? Yeah, he's been so additive from the beginning throughout and I remember the Chevalier theme, the Langdon theme, was very late into the process on, on Da Vinci Code. Really? And we didn't have it and we didn't have it and we had some temp music in there and it wasn't really right and we kept pressing on Hans and finally he said, all right, damn it, I know, I've got to do it. I, I haven't done it yet. And he brought us in and it was one of those moments where suddenly he's playing this piece and, you know, we're all getting emotional and feeling, you know, the essence of Robert Langdon. Now, with Inferno, which is the third of these movies, they don't have to be seen in order. They're all standalone, you know, adventure stories. Yeah. And of course they're, you know, they're pop movies. They're, you know, they're meant to appeal to a broad audience and, and they're meant to be fun. But when he saw the cut of the movie, he said, Ron, you've really done something interesting here. Between the images of Dante's Hell and this sort of very contemporary point of view that you've used of Robert Langdon's, and, and it's sort of the pacing of the movie. This is a, this is a different tone, it's a much more modern movie. Mm. And I think the music should reflect that. began sort of deconstructing some of the, the Langdon themes and playing them in a, in a little more techno way, a, a more contemporary sort of digital sound. And it was really arresting and really uh, exciting to, to see what he had identified about the movie that was fresh and new and, and how to support that.
I love all those kind of slightly hedonistic moments where you're in his head and he can't focus and control what's real, what's not. It works beautifully. Well, and even the crisis is contemporary. It's about overpopulation. It's about it's about a terrorist reaction to that. You know, seeking a solution uh, in a kind of rogue, um, fanatical way yeah. in a very dangerous way. Those are all modern fears. It's not about the history. And I shot it in a much less classical and formal way and gave it, you know, a little more uh, of a modern European street thriller feel. Yeah. And he really responded to that and it was exciting. I was lucky enough to see you not a couple of weeks ago as well for your wonderful Beatles documentary. Thank you. I grew up with the Beatles. My mum went to see them when she was 13 years old at the Caird Hall in Dundee. And you know, you kind of go in, what can you tell me about the Beatles that I don't know? But you tell us so much about these friends who formed a band and yeah. you reminded how great they were as a band. Yeah, well, Sir Paul kept saying, you know, uh, well, we were, we were a great little band and it's nice to be reminded <laughs> of that. And it's he was true. sort of discovering it about himself and them. Everybody, how do you do? Why do they scream? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. The Beatles. In one meteoric year, they've led the way from the cellars of Liverpool to the national limelight. What about the reports that you guys are nothing but a bunch of British Elvis It's not true. It's not true. <laughs> It was interesting. I was doing that movie along with preparing and shooting Inferno. Wow. And I also was preparing a 10-hour event series that we're doing for uh, National Geographic Channel uh, on the life of Albert Einstein. And at, as I was putting the finishing touches on the Beatles documentary and running over to a story meeting about Einstein and going to the, the, the scoring session for Inferno, I realized, wow, I'm dealing with a lot of geniuses this year. <laughs> because undeniably, that's what, that's what the Beatles were as, a, as individuals and as a collective. And it was really inspiring uh, to be around that. And now my life has changed in oh, so many ways. I thought, well, it's been great to work on this documentary, and I hope I have been able to shape a story that puts the focus on the band in a particular way, and, and therefore maybe offers something fresh. Ooh, 
Just on a basic level, I thought, well, the movie didn't cost very much to make, except you could never afford that score. <laughs> it'd be priceless. Uh, it'd be the most expensive movie I ever made. <laughs> I had to pay for all those songs. Say that, but I'm sure that one of your earliest films you used Stones was on. Yes, on we the... did a night shift. Yeah, yeah, so jumping it, jack flash, which I can't imagine was cheap. Well, for the time, it was very expensive, but it was also uh, a, a great defining moment for the Michael Keaton character. Fun movie, and we had a lot of interesting music in that. Yeah, I won't remember the titles, but several songs that actually didn't break then, but within a year or two became big, important songs. <laughs> Including "That's What Friends Are For," which Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sayer wrote, and they. Burt scored the movie, which yeah. was a great experience. I know, I was about to say, if you oh. were your first film when you have Burt Bacharach well, it was so close because Yeah, that was, <laughs> he was friends with Alan Ladd Jr., whose company it was, was making the movie. And we found ourselves in, in a very fortunate circumstance <laughs> of, of working with the, the two of them on this movie. And it was, a, it was really fun. They wrote this song, I think Rod Stewart sang it, and it was, that's what friends are for. Yeah. And it didn't break out. And then just a few years later, it became the anthem for uh, an AIDS charity or something, yeah. as I recall, and wound up winning Grammys and so forth. of artists that you've used throughout your films and if it's any kind of reflection on your personal taste in music you've got good taste in music well thank you i am not a big consumer 
of mm -hmm. music. I, I don't have a collection, and I, I know a lot more about baseball uh, in terms <laughs> of being able to name the players and yeah. tell you their batting average than I can tell you the <laughs> names of the songs that I like. But I love music, and I like all genres, so it's a little bit like my taste in movies. Mm. I bear no prejudice. When a thing works for me, when a piece of music works for me, I get excited. your career you know way back when you started the music man wonderful musical I remember growing up and singing as a child you know 76 trombones and oh, all that kind of stuff great music unbelievable and I have so many memories watching those big musical production numbers Huge. come together sometimes I was a part of them but more often you know I was on the sidelines and I could watch but it was still a proud moment to be marching in that 76 trombones <laughs> finale uh, around the Warner Brothers town square the same town square that was later uh, featured in back to the future no <laughs> Oh, yeah. oh uh. man, that's a great piece of <laughs> film information. I love that. world to, to be part of as a child that influences the world that you're still in and still inspired by and still driven to Well, it was quite a, part of. quite a playground and I, I was fortunate to grow up in it and to fall in love with it and not have mixed emotions about it. To just know that this was a shoe that fit, a world I wanted to be um, a part of. And it didn't take me long before I realized I wanted to be a director. I, I wanted to be at the center, you know, of the, of the whole thing. I do remember, though, that when I was cast in The Music Man, you know, I was already on a popular television show, and I think they liked the idea of me doing the part. I really, really never been able to carry a tune. They justified that by deciding that was kind of cute. But I mean, <laughs> I worked on that song for about three months. I remember when we recorded it, it was with a live orchestra. No I was pressure. having trouble keeping up. Well, I didn't feel the pressure. It was just fun for me. But I, I was having a little bit of trouble staying in time. And the composer actually gave me the baton and said, why don't you guide the orchestra while you sing? He thought that would help me. It was a great memory. <laughs> it didn't matter a hill of beans. I was still struggling. <laughs> But I got to the song, Gary, Indiana. They wanted me to do this little time step and kind of at the end of the song, my home, sweet home, and then do this, and then the Irish actress, Kurt Kelton, was supposed to do it also. And I remember doing it, and it was the first thing that we shot. And the director kind of said, well, can you try it again? Uh, do it the way the choreographer showed you. I did the best I could. And then I whispered and talked to the choreographer, and then I just remember him turning to the, to the camera operators and said, bring him at his knees. <laughs> And just turn around in a circle, son. Just turn around in a circle. So that was it for the complicated step. I got to just kind of move around. And if you see the movie, you see they're not showing that little kid's feet. <laughs> I'm going to watch it back again specifically to see that. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. Let me say it once again. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. 
at the town that knew me when. If you'd like to have a logical explanation, how I happened on this elephantlinkopation, I will say without a moment of hesitation, there is just one place that can light my face. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, and not Louisiana, Paris, France, New York, or Williams as well in Far and Away. Oh, I did. What a joy. So gracious, so brilliant, and a score that I'm incredibly proud of. I was blown away by that experience, and I never had a chance to work with him again. He's just always booked. But, you know, what a brilliant composer and, and a gentleman. I had an interesting conversation with him around lunch one day where I said, well, what is it about music? It's this language, I don't read music, I can play the guitar a little bit, I can pick away at a few chords. I don't understand much about music theory. What's this language? What is this universal language? And he said, well, I don't really know, none of us really know, but he says, I think it has something to do with nature. I think that percussion, he didn't invent this, he said he'd read about it. He said, Percussion might simply be the way it stirs us. It may be the sound that on a primal level, early humans heard when a, there was a stampede going on, mm. you know, of buffalo. Thunder, birds, what could be more musical and more thematic than birds? Uh, what could be more soothing than running water and more repetitive? So he kind of believed that music knew how to touch us on the most primal level. One thing as well, I'm not sure you're aware of is that well, you probably are because you, you did it, was the amount of TV shows that you were involved in that had amazing theme tunes. There's the most popular one that people from Happy Days, but also things like Bonanza. Really wonderful pieces of music that were for TV shows. You know, I mean, I made a list actually. Lassie, Bonanza, MASH as well. Oh, I mean, yeah. Phenomenal. I said something the other day and I was kind of embarrassed to admit it and Tom Hanks said he does the same thing which is go back on YouTube and go listen to the themes and watch the openings of some of these classic TV shows with those great, great themes. <laughs> the 
The Andy Griffith Show had a very famous theme. I don't know how well known it is around the world. It's a whistled theme, and it goes. I'm a little dry right now. <laughs> And it goes on. Composer Earl Hagen whistled it, and it's brilliant. And one day I got a phone call, and it was Michael Jackson. I thought somebody was pulling my leg, but I'd met him once or twice. And got on the phone, and it was him. And he said, Ron, I'm trying to do a record. And you know that, that whistle from the Andy Griffith Show? You know who did that? I said, well, the composer, Earl Hagen, did it. Is he still alive? I said, yes, he's still alive. I, I think our office can put you in contact with him. So he said, I want to use it for a track, and I want to contact Mr. Hagen. Okay, well, I, I don't know if whatever came of it. Maybe I never heard a whistle. I'm pretty sure whatever happens is whistling, in it? You sorted that out. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? And what an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much, and, and keep keep entertaining us, please. Thank, Thank you very much. Fun conversation, too. Thank you so much. One of the only Michael Jackson songs we could find that features whistling, that's whatever happens, for which Ron Howard should or should not be given a credit. Either way, it seems a fitting way to round off this latest episode of Soundtracking, given his most excellent anecdote on the subject. My huge thanks to Ron for taking the time to talk to us and for being such open, enthusiastic and engaging company. Starring Tom Hanks, Inferno is on general release around the world now, while Hans Zimmer's score is available via Sony Music Entertainment. If you want to know what tracks we played in the order they appear, head to edithbowman.com where you can also subscribe to the podcast and listen to all of our previous episodes. Ben Wheatley, Todd Solins, John Favreau, Matt Ross and Andrea Arnold are among those waiting to share their musical taste with you. And do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where we'll keep you up to speed with what's going on and coming up. Speaking of which, my next guest is the fascinating and hugely talented Nicholas Winding Refn. Expect lots of Cliff Martinez chat. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.